Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder on the Space Coast is brought to you by attorney Steve Casanova. Check him out at surferlaw.com. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. If that's the case, Tom, then it's pretty likely that whoever did this would have had some blood on them. Yes. Right? Yes. You weren't going to walk out of this you know, totally clean, you right? You would not. I would look for stab wounds on the offender's hands. So he says you are now arrested for murder and he brings you into the station. What happens next? All right. I says, do you want an attorney? I said, yes, I do. He said, we're going to burn you in literature unless you cooperate. I said, I want an attorney. And they still interrogated me for 12 hours. I'm news columnist John A. Torres. What we've learned so far over the first two episodes of Murder on the Space Coast, Helen Nardi, who was 55 years old and certainly no candidate to win the Mother of the Year prize, was found stabbed 26 times in her Palm Bay trailer in the summer of 1983. She was found by her daughter Mary, whose husband, Kermit Parkins, was having sex with both mother and daughter. We know Helen lost two other children to child services because she routinely sold her daughters for sex in exchange for rent. The state wanted to take Mary away as well, but they agreed to let her marry instead. She was only 16 at the time, and Kermit Parkins was 53 when he made her his bride. Lastly, we know that there were several hand and fingerprints left at the scene, some from Kermit, Mary, and other friends. There were also prints that were never identified. One print, though, drew more interest than others. It belonged to 26-year-old neighbor Gary Bennett, When asked about that palm print, Gary explained that he had previously helped Helen carry groceries into her trailer, though he had no explanation why his print would be on a hallway closet door that slid into her bedroom. He was charged with murder two days after the killing, and then released when a rape kit test showed his pubic hair did not match hairs found at the scene. The police believed her murder was also a sexual assault. In the very least, They know she'd had sex in the hours before her death. Once again, a warning. Murder on the Space Coast is, well, about a murder. And things can get pretty graphic. It may not be suitable for sensitive or younger listeners. So here we are now, a few days after Helen's murder, and Gary has basically spent all night with the police. He's charged, handcuffed, questioned undergoes a rape test kit, and eventually he is let go. So Gary is thinking he's been cleared, but the homicide investigators are thinking something else entirely. Here's retired Palm Bay Police Lieutenant Richard Adams, who was the supervising officer at the time of Helen's murder. After we accumulated this evidence, we thought there was sufficient evidence. We charged him with first-degree murder and put him, locked him up. The following day, I got a call from the state attorney, Norm Wolfinger, 
he wasn't the state attorney, but he was one of the prosecuting attorneys at that time, and Mr. Moxley, and said, talking to me as a supervisor and saying, you know, by charging him with first-degree murder, you put us under a time frame. And we went back and forth, and I said, this is the physical evidence that we have. I feel confident with this charge. And when the case comes in and you get the reports from FDLE on the lab work, you understand what I'm talking about. They had reservations about it, but, you know, I'd worked with them before on other homicides, and it, it went from there. Adam's recollection is close, but it's not perfect. Norman Wolfinger would later go on to serve as the state attorney for the 18th Judicial Circuit that covers Brevard and Seminole Counties. But at that time, he was working in the public defender's office. Moxley is prosecutor John Dean Moxley, who would later go on to serve as a circuit judge for many years until his retirement. Remember his name, Moxley. We will hear it again. So Helen's body is found in her bedroom, and Adams and others on the case just don't buy Gary's explanation of carrying groceries in for Helen as the reason why his handprint would show up in her trailer. They don't understand how his handprint wound up in her bedroom on the closet door if he wasn't the killer. After all, Gary had told them that he couldn't remember ever going into Helen's bedroom. And not remembering is what changed everything for Gary Bennett according to Paul Castellaro, a lawyer out of New Jersey with Centurion Ministries, an organization that works to free the wrongfully incarcerated and who has worked on this case. I gave Paul a call to see if he could offer any insight. If Gary had gone into these guys and spoke to these guys and said, yeah, I went into the back of her trailer, yep. they had no case. Right. But he didn't say that, and he wouldn't say it. Right. And that's all he had to do, to be honest, is that's the only thing he had to do to be, for them to have absolutely no case. But exactly where was Gary's handprint in relation to Helen's body and the bedroom? I asked Gary to go through it one more time, starting with how well he knew the woman. My dad and my stepmother knew her a lot better than I did. I knew uh, Helen uh, to talk to when she came walking by. I mean, I could talk with her. Uh, I walked her back and forth a couple of times, but that was it. I mean, I, I didn't know her that well. I had no idea about the uh, what was going on with her son-in-law and her, and I had no idea about anything like that. It wasn't until that one day that I was going to my grandmother's house that I ran into her. She had a bag, and it, do you know the plain shopping bags you get in the yeah. store? All right, it was folded over like that, and I, let me carry that for you. And, cause, and I carried it right down to her trailer for her, and we went in, and she showed me her trailer, uh, room from room, oh, I like this, and it's only $100. Oh, that's wonderful, you know. And, and they said that my fingerprint was supposedly found in the bedroom. Right, on the closet door or something. That, that's something right here. That's the reason I got this, because I wanted to show you. Here is a, of the bedroom, of the whole trailer. They said that my fingerprint was supposedly found right here, but the closet's over here. Right. That doesn't make no sense. Right. Let's pause for a second, and let me try to help you visualize the trailer. It's not easy because I'm working from a crude police drawing and only a few crime scene photos. But still, it's not the Taj Mahal. So here you go. 
Okay, so the boxcar-style trailer sits north to south, with the entrance on the northeast corner. The door, which opens outwardly, leads into the middle of the living room, which is mainly to your right. A sofa and end table are to the far right of the room. A small kitchen is on your left, with a TV on a shelf. On her kitchen table were a few boxes of band-aids and a jar of something that I just could not make out. There is not much beyond the kitchen, just a small hallway with a bathroom on the left and a closet with sliding glass doors on the right that extends 21 inches into the bedroom. Helen's bed sat on the back wall on the southernmost part of the trailer. A second entrance to the trailer in the bedroom had been previously nailed shut. Okay, so back to my conversation with Gary. That doesn't make no sense. Right. Unless you were in the bedroom. No. The whole thing is, the closet extends from all the way to the middle hall into the bedroom. I see. So if you open a door here, the door goes into the bedroom. You shut the door here, you're in the hallway. Right, right. And they're saying that they found it, my fingerprint on the door of the closet. So that doesn't even place me in the bedroom. Right, that's true. It places you at, at best in the hallway or in the bathroom. Exactly. Exactly. Reaching over. Exactly. Gotcha. All right. This closet right here, when you open the door up, it goes, slides into the bedroom because the closet is in the bedroom. It's in, in the middle of the hallway and into the bedroom. And when you slide the door, it, this door goes into the bedroom. They're trying to say because my handprint was supposedly on the, uh, on the door that that placed me in the bedroom. I've never denied being in the bedroom. I said, they said, when were you last in the bedroom? Hell, I don't remember, is exactly what I said. Right. I don't remember. I have never said, no, I, have n- I was not, never in that bedroom. I never said that. Well, according to the drawing, his explanation makes perfect sense. He told police that he used the bathroom and checked out the trailer. It seems perfectly normal that he could have placed his hand on the closet door as he exited from the bathroom. And like he says, if she did show him around, then there is even more of a chance that he would have leaned against a wall and touched the closet door as she pointed out her bedroom. I also have a drawing of the door made by Detective Leroy Dunning, and he places Gary's print just below the handle or knob on the closet door. But Dunning and Moxley had their sights set on Gary. They just needed to make a case that a grand jury could support. And what pointing at Gary as the killer did was it closed the door on any other possibility, including asking questions about Helen's lifestyle, about the incest that was going on with her and her son-in-law, Kermit Parkins, who was also 10 years her senior. Dunning's testimony while being deposed is kind of striking. When questioned about how Kermit Parkins described intercourse with his mother-in-law, Leroy Dunning told attorneys, Yeah, he said he never bothered her any way but natural. That's his term? The attorney replied. That's his term, said Dunning. Okay, but we don't know what's natural to him, do we? The attorney countered. No, the detective replied. Since he apparently thought natural was having sex with your wife's mother, the attorney said. The detective then admitted to not even questioning Mary about the sexual relationship, saying he knew she'd already experienced enough trouble. Remember, he was once her landlord and knew the family for years. 
It seems that Gary's involvement in the case should have already ended. Sure, there is a handprint that is or isn't explained, depending on whether you believe Gary. But the pubic hairs didn't match, and there seems to be a lot more than meets the eye, especially when you consider Helen's past and her sexual relationship with her son-in-law, Kermit. Plus, according to court transcripts, Helen's daughter Mary removed the bloody rug from her mother's trailer and got rid of it before crime scene people were done with it. In fact, lead detective Leroy Dunning had arranged for crime scene experts out of Sanford to come in and spray the carpet with luminol to see if there were any other prints or even a shoe print. He called it odd that Mary would have removed it. Remember, Mary ran out when the cops arrived and yelled that her husband had not killed Helen. She said it over and over. Now, according to the court documents and some police records, Mary is referred to as dim-witted. Those are their words, not mine. Still, let's consider all this for a moment. Her husband is having sex with her mother. She blurted out that her husband was innocent. She also pointed out the abrasions on Mary's knees to the police. And finally, she had the rug removed almost immediately. Using all of the tools available to me as a journalist, I set out to find Mary and ask her about all this. After a few days of cross-referencing names and addresses and previous addresses, it seemed as if I had actually found her. Excuse me, sir. Hey, hi. Uh, I'm trying to find 1100 North John Rhodes Boulevard. That's the address I was given. Um, well, is this whole is this whole park 1100? I don't think so. Oh. Okay, so you get the picture. The address I found wasn't really an address to a home or a trailer at all. I wandered around the trailer park closest to the address for a bit, and even asked for her in the management office, but to no avail. I could not find her, and that was frustrating. I really wanted to learn what she knew what she remembered, and if she could offer any insight at all into why police seemed to focus on Gary right from the start. So I decided to place a call to a guy I know, lawyer Seth Miller, who heads up the Innocence Project of Florida, to see how prosecutors or police can continue making a case when the evidence appears to be scant. The Innocence Project is a nonprofit that works to free the wrongfully incarcerated. I met Seth years ago when his group proved that two local men Wilton Dedge and William Dillon were totally innocent and should never have been sent to prison. Each man spent more than 20 years locked up for something they did not do. Good morning, Innocence Project of Florida. This is Adina speaking. How can I help? Hey, Torres. Hey, buddy. How you doing, man? So after catching up, asking about the new house and family... I asked Seth to describe what happens next, and he knows what he's talking about, having worked on freeing two men from this exact time period who had been wrongfully incarcerated and spent years and years in prison. And so um, what you saw, and and this is really, I think, a formula for all these cases, you saw cases that when terrible crime happens uh, and law enforcement doesn't have sort of immediate answers, they um, center on a person as the potential suspect, and then, you know, sort of through tunnel vision, um, build a case around that person while ignoring uh, 
um, signs that they may, in fact, not be the person. And so when you have that situation and you're sort of manufacturing a case of some uh, against someone who um, may be actually innocent, we now know some of them were actually innocent, you end up having gaps or holes in the case. So then the question is, what do you do? Because you've got to prosecute it. So you take steps to fill in those gaps with evidence that's going to help you secure a conviction. So in other words, Gary was not going to get off the hook that easy. In fact, he was brought in for questioning again a few days later, and his story, well, it never changed. Then they asked Gary if he would take a polygraph test. While not admissible in court, they are used by law enforcement as a tool to help guide investigations. Gary agreed, and along with his dad, they made the 60-minute drive from Palm Bay to Titusville, where they met with Phil Sellers, who worked for the state attorney's office. He was an experienced polygraphist. In talking with Gary, I get the impression that he really felt he needed to be proactive and prove his innocence, rather than leave it to someone else to prove otherwise. Went to Titusville, they gave me a two-hour lie detector test with, uh, by uh, Phil Sellers. And I said, yeah. He gave me, and said right in front of me, my dad, and Moxley, he said, in no way did this man try to deceive me. Moxley threw it to the side and laughed and said, well, it don't matter, it's not admissible in court anyway. I've done everything I can to prove my innocence. And this is the part of the case that I find really troubling. Well, you know, one of the things I find yeah, really okay. troubling is that you went for this polygraph. Yes. You pass it. Yes. And then the Palm Bay police say, well, we want somebody else to look at it. No. Uh, Was that Leroy Dunning, no, Leroy Dunning did that on his own. He did. He said, uh, you got a copy of that. I want a copy of it. And he took it, and he had it, one of his own police sergeants read it, who said, oh, he failed. I have no way of knowing whether Moxley laughed and scoffed at the results, but I do know that everything else is absolutely spot on. Records indicate that Gary showed no deception, and the records also indicate that Leroy Dunning had another officer interpret the results. And yep, you guessed it, that guy said, Gary failed his lie detector test. Now here's where things really start going south for Gary. Remember that friend who said he was with Gary at the Magic Mart and who said he saw the white car with the Texas plates as well? Well, Gary had told police that he was hanging out there drinking a few beers. But the alibi falls apart when the friend, who was the night manager of the Magic Mart, can no longer remember clearly. Was he afraid of losing his job? Or did he just not want to get involved? It's confusing. Are they talking about the same day? What we do know is that either Gary or his buddy is wrong. And what that does is it really hurts Gary's explanation for where he was the night Helen Nardi was murdered. I asked Gary about that. Okay, now he said that, but then later on he changes his story, right? Yes, because he said, and I've got it right in the transcripts, he says that, he came in, was talking about going swimming with his mom the next day, got, got, right, got a beer and left. That was the day before. The day that I had come, got, just got back from swimming, I went to mom's house, we spent the day there, and then about 11 o'clock that night I left her trailer, walked down to the store, 
and spent the, the whole night at the store helping him and then left at 5.45 the next morning. There were six city workers that placed me there between 2 and 3 o'clock. The newspaper lady placed me there between 3 and 4 o'clock. So I had plenty of witnesses as I was there, and he said, yeah, I got my days mixed up. Okay, let's pause for a second. This alibi is pretty important. Did his buddy just get mixed up, or did he change his story so as to not lose his job? Or could there be some other reason? Whatever it was, now the state had a failed polygraph, even though the person who administered the test said he passed with flying colors, a palm print, a mental issue, which we know is epilepsy, and now cracks in Gary's alibi. Still, it was not nearly enough to secure a grand jury indictment. They needed more. As the dog days of August drew to a close, prosecutor John Dean Moxley had an ace up his sleeve, a surefire secret weapon he had used before when the evidence was just not quite there. Dog handler John Preston. So on August 24th, about six weeks after Helen Nardi was killed, Moxley makes a phone call to Preston and arrangements are made for him to fly to Florida from Pennsylvania. And even before Preston was exposed as a complete and total fraud, whose testimony sent several innocent men to prison for a long time, there were those who doubted what Preston claimed his dog was capable of. In fact, by the time he was called in to work on this case, he was already being accused in New York of being a phony and a fraud, and some of the cases that he had worked on were being looked at. Among Preston's doubters was now-retired Lieutenant Richard Adams of the Palm Bay Police. Remember, he was the acting supervisor at the time of Helen's murder. He recounted a phone call he had with Moxley at the time. I served in Vietnam with canines. I know their skills and abilities. And to come back after this time frame, I, I used tracks. And to a track, that seems to be an extended period of time. But use a state attorney if you want to do that. Uh, just realize... As the lieutenant, I have a problem, but that's just between me and you. He talked to me and said they were using him on other cases in the area and that um, he wanted to do it uh, to gain Mr. Preston some credibility. And he was used in quite a few other jurisdictions and with good results. Now, a word here about former prosecutor and retired judge John Dean Moxley. He was, by all accounts a well-respected prosecutor and judge, and remains admired by many in Brevard County. Me? Well, he's never agreed to an interview, comment, or a soundbite when I've asked, and I have asked a lot, including for this podcast. I have been, on more than one occasion, critical of his work as a prosecutor in several high-profile cases, and his name often pops up in relation to the dog handler, John Preston, and with a few wrongful incarceration stories. He was the lead prosecutor who put Wilton Dedge and William Dillon in jail, in part by ignoring alibis, using the dog handler, and making deals with jailhouse informants to reduce their sentences in exchange for their testimony. Maybe he didn't like what I wrote, and that's his prerogative. He has granted interviews to others. Anyway, the dog handler is brought in from Pennsylvania. He's put up in a hotel, and a scent test is performed on September 9th. Let's pause this for a second. September 9th is nearly two months after the murder. Bar, that's the dog's name, 
takes a scent from Gary's clothes, which have been washed, by the way, and then is asked to find that same scent on one of the bloody towels from the Helen Nardi murder scene. What does the dog do? He proceeds to urinate on all the bloody rags. The canine has more success on the second test that day. Again, sniffing Gary's clothes first, the dog proceeds to pick out the pair of bloody scissors used in Helen Nardi's murder. Amazing, right? Well, not really, considering it was the only one covered in blood, the other scissors being brand new and just taken from their packaging. In any event, now Moxley decided that they have enough evidence to present this to a grand jury. And he's right. The grand jury returns an indictment on October 14th, and it is about a week later that Gary is charged with first-degree murder and rape of Helen Nardi. So when you get charged again now, a few months later, what is going through your mind? You're 26 years old. You got I'm, I'm thinking that because, I mean, I believed in the system, and I believed, I did not believe that there was any way that I would be falsely convicted of a crime. I did not believe that there was any way that this evidence would be withheld. I had no idea that I believed in the system. I had no idea the system was out to screw you. Coming next time, Gary's trial and an all-too-familiar strategy used by the prosecution to close the case. Just again, for the record, did you ever have sex with Helen Nardi? No, I did not. Even, like, way before Never. this? Okay. Never. And did you kill Helen No, Nardi? I did not. Have you ever killed anybody? No, sir. I am more than willing at any time to take any type of test that they could possibly come up with to prove my innocence. That's all for now. Be sure to click subscribe in the iTunes or Google Play Store or follow in the Stitcher Radio app so that you never miss an episode. I'm news columnist John A. Torres. You can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on the case and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Thanks again for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Murder on the Space Coast is written and reported by John A. Torres. The editor is Mara Bellaby. The producer is Rob Landers.